A reading from Exodus 21 to 17, the Ten Commandments. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God. For who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of their parents of the third and the fourth generation of those who reject me. But showing steadfast love, to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath. To the Lord your God, you shall not do any work, you, your son or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female slave, ox, donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. A reading from John 2, verses 13 through 22. Jesus cleanses the temple. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords... He drove all of them out of the temple with the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered then, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, And they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Butter.
coconut oil, cakes, biscuits, sausage, bacon, cheese, ice cream, pie, are all delicious foods. And one thing that they have in common are saturated fats. Saturated fats, often fats that come from animal fat, are heavily saturated with hydrogen because of a double bond or something like that. If you want to actually know more about it, probably ask Shelby. Since the 1950s, saturated fats were considered a link, were considered to be linked to cardiovascular disease. And this was a commonly held fact by the scientific community. As a result, it had been suggested that we watch how many saturated fats we take in our bodies, we eat and consume. However, in 2015, the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee expressed that the evidence tying saturated fats to cardiovascular disease was pretty weak. And some were arguing that the limits that this organization put forth on consumption were not warranted. Now, I'm not a medical professional, so before you go home and start pounding sticks of butter, I suggest you talk to a physician who actually knows how to read these types of studies ahead of time. We've experienced conversations like this around the topic of science in our past. One does not have to think very hard to remember the weeks early on in the pandemic when, at one point, cloth diapers, I mean cloth masks, were considered effective against, you can see where my head is these days. <laughs> um, cloth masks were considered to be effective against COVID-19. And then the next week, they were considered by another study as being pointless based on a different experiment. And then the next week, the studies showed that they were effective, but only if everybody was wearing them. Whether masks or saturated fats, this is how the scientific method works. We have a hypothesis, we test the, the, test the experiment, analyze the data, and draw conclusions. If the results align with the hypothesis, you may have found significant results. If not, you go back to the drawing board again, write out a hypothesis, a new question, test it, test it, experiment, test it. In American politics, we have responded to this method in two different ways. We have made conversations around science really difficult as a result. The left has argued that the science creates truth, but they fail to articulate that the scientific method works in a way where the most recent evidence from scientific method is the most recent evidence. And the more science does, the more evidence and different conclusions might appear. So when new findings come out, the right wing starts arguing that science has no clue what it's doing because it keeps always proving itself wrong. The left never wants to see science as wrong. The right never wants to recognize any of the findings because at some point, those are often proven wrong by newer science. Both of those types of conclusions are all or nothing. They leave a lack of space for the scientific method to breathe, to find new things, to test new things, and to make ongoing discoveries and conclusions via the method that has given us so much in the last centuries, medicine, vaccines, cured diseases, 
and much more. Some things that aren't so great either. When it's all or nothing, there is no space for uncertainty. And this lack of spaciousness makes it difficult for anything to breathe. Today's theme is proving ground, fitting with our Lent ground theme. The proving ground is the place where technology that is developed from the scientific findings are tested. Something new is tried. Something, sometimes it fails, sometimes it works. Either way, learning happens. And you can see up here this Sunday we have some different beakers and Erlenmeyer flasks and test tubes here, thanks to uh, Steve Harnish, who helped gather some of those materials. When we test something out, we don't know what will happen. We don't, or if we did, it wouldn't be a test. When we try an experiment, we don't know what will happen. So what does this have to do with faith? As people of faith, we must accept a level of uncertainty. When faith becomes all-encompassing, all-certain, it lacks the gaps needed for the Spirit of God to move. Or it's no longer faith, but certainty. And so today I would like to consider these two scripture texts that were beautifully read by the Logos reading team through the lens of testing, a bit of an experimentation, and see how these tests create a level of spaciousness for the Spirit to breathe. First, today we had the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Jesus st stepped into a complex social space when he enters the temple. Temple was a location where money changing happened because uh, that money and finances ensured the availability of animals to sacrifice. The court of Gentiles, which is where the story probably took place, uh, was developed and built by King Herod in the rebuilding of the temple. And this was a location where many shops and part of the section of the temple where the Gentiles or non-Israelites could also go. So then enters Jesus, flipping tables of the money changers in a fit of rage, frustrated the way they've, and it frustrated the way that their tradition uh, was at work. I imagine in many ways that Jesus' action disrupted the status quo, the buying and selling, the commerce, the everyday first-century Palestinian life. This disruption was an attempt, could have been an attempt, to shake up what was daily life, perhaps uh, a disruption that could create change so that the Spirit could breathe new life into that community. I can easily forget that these stories were at one time fresh for each of us, at one time fresh for the readers of the gospel, the first readers of the gospel, at one time fresh for the disciples. Jesus is offering new ground for us to stand on. It might feel old to us because we know the story well, but how do we, like Jesus, invite disruption into our everyday lives? Disruption, like a type of experiment, when something is disrupted, what is disrupted is life at usual. Go to the temple, buy some meat, say hi to your friend, and so on. These practices and ways of going, uh, have ways of, of being that go unquestioned. You don't know what will happen when a disruption comes along. A protest. It reminds me of how several folks from our congregation, when they went to protest for a ceasefire, 
in Columbus and in D.C., that they didn't know what would happen either. There was a level of anxiety in not knowing what would happen. It was an experiment with the hope that this kind of disruption would shake up the lives of those around us enough to remind them how, well, now we have nearly 30,000 Palestinians that have been killed. It was an action of uncertainty for a tiny hope of change. Let's check out our other story. Our Hebrew Bible scripture for today is the reading of the Ten Commandments. How are these Ten Commandments a bit of an experiment? The Ten Commandments were the list of laws that Moses brought to the Israelites after consulting with God on Mount Sinai. The very first, and they were untested and untried. This was the law that brought uh, this was the law that was given to the Jews who were a marginalized group fresh out of Egypt. Walter Brueggemann writes that the Ten Commandments did not have any ruling power or any institution or tradition holding them up. It was a set of laws that were part of a covenant with God, the God who liberated them from slavery. It was something that the Jews wanted to opt into because they desired to be connected to this God who saved them. It was created for a survival of a minority. It's, very different. it's a very different context than seeing the Ten Commandments written on our courthouses, a state institution that has placed more people in prison than any nation in the history of humanity. For a historical Jew, the Ten Commandments and the rest of the law was a place to put your faith because of the covenant with the divine that had rescued them from slavery. They took a huge risk escaping from Egypt with chariots pursuing them. And this law brought about spaciousness. It nurtured their newly found freedom. I imagine it was nice to have a sense of boundaries and expectations for your community after fleeing Egypt. If not, would have total chaos ensued. The proving ground is a place where we experiment where we test new things. But to test something, you have to put yourself out there and try it. If you don't, then the possibilities in the future are closed off. The only option when one does not try something or test something out is to repeat the same things over and over and over again. There is something great about routine, especially in a chaotic world like we live in. However, when we only live in routine, we can easily not be of the way other ways that God is calling and may be calling us. Excessive repetition is a slow death closed off to the spirit of God. For the followers of Jesus, Jesus brought disruption from this repetition to the temple routines, to some of the Jewish practices at the time. He brought a different way for people to engage the world. For the Israelites, fresh out of slavery, the law brought from the chaos a new way of living in community and in covenant with God. These changes only happen if we try to test something out. I'm reminded of a story of a friend when I was a student at Lancaster Mennonite High School. We were attending what was a mandatory high school chapel service that concluded in a call for folks to come forward for a blessing of some sort. I don't think it was an altar call, 
but it was something close to it. My friend was curious. Do people really feel anything when they go up forward for stuff like this? My friend was more of the type that would scoff at events like this, filled with skepticism. But all of a sudden, there he was going forward. After the service, I asked him, why did he go up? It was unlike him. He said that they keep having stuff like this, so I thought I would try it and see if I feel anything. I asked, did you feel anything? He said, no. This friend has little interest in faith this, these days. I look back at this, and I admire his decision as a skeptic to go forward and test it out. I also look back and think it's sad that this might have been one of the only tests that I know of that he did. There are a lot of other ways to experiment with faith that don't involve grand public gestures like going forward at a, for a blessing or an altar call. Lent is the perfect time for something like this, a chance to experiment. Some folks like giving something up for those 40 days. When one gives up something for Lent, it's like having a sudden hole in your life. What do you do with this space? Giving up video games, TV shows, screen time, phone scrolling, certain foods, certain routines, certain repetitive activities is an experiment. It might totally fail, or you could find yourself doing something different than you thought, something different than before. When we are removed from our repetitious activities, we can create spaciousness, holes in our lives that allow the space for the spirit to disrupt and to speak. When Jesus cleared the temple, there was a vacuum, an emptiness left in its place. What do we do with this blank space? Meditating on that emptiness might be a meaningful activity, reflecting on what was lost, what is gone, reflecting on one's urges to repeat and to repeat and to repeat a routine. It could be meaningful to prayerfully ask what might feel that emptiness, or maybe it just needs to stay empty because, well, our lives can be busy. It's one big experiment. Some of us live lives with no routine at all to start off with, and I tend to venture into that reality. Perhaps following in the way of the Jews fresh out of slavery might be a better experiment for Lent, adding more structure. Maybe your life could use some rules that could help you, some routine that would disrupt the chaos that is part of your life, like an afternoon walk, morning prayers, or journaling setting work boundaries for more evening time. Or maybe something way out of the ordinary, like Pastor Carrie, who, though she took a couple years of piano lessons as a kid, is willing to play piano at the all-age, all-skill piano recital in a week. Come if you want to see it. These experiments can create space for us to learn about ourselves. They also create space for the subtle kingdom of God to break into our reality. We worship a subtle and disruptive God. The kingdom of God does not arrive on tanks or bombers, but through the subtle force of God breaking into our world. 
If we are not open to the grand experiment, the spirit can disrupt, where, where the spirit can disrupt each of our lives, if we're not open to this, then the spirit may not move. Who knows? You might even start eating a lot more butter. <laughs>